Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a favorite from the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze archive. This show was originally recorded on November 29th, 2018. Off from my city, off from my home. We're flying up, no ceiling when we in our zone. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. Really good show coming up because we have a cookbook a little later on, The Little Book of Jewish Feasts by our guest Leah Koenig. We all use butter from time to time, the three top-tasting butters, thanks to the Cook's Illustrated Tasting Panel, along with a few of their terrific kitchen tips and surprises. We never know exactly what's going to happen on the show. Robin's music choices get us in the mood. We love to party with you as you listen, wherever you are. I'm with my treasured food buddy, senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken, senior contributors Mark Raymond, the chef and home cook, Chris Prosperi, and from our sister public radio station in Phoenix, KJZZ, Alex Province. Hey, everybody. Hey, Faith. Hey, Faith. Okay, <laughs> we are at the Big G Gateway Community College in downtown New Haven, where we use five gigantic professional kitchens, mm-hmm. as you know. It's part of Gateway's culinary education program. The aromas are seductive in there, I will tell you that. Now, a question to start the show. Who? was the inventor who died recently at age 92, and she had created one of the most treasured Thanksgiving side dishes. What was the dish she invented? Give them a second as they listen from wherever Drum they are, because I know I knew right away that Chris Brusbury was going to be the guy who would know the answer to this. Okay, Chris. Give green, me. Bean casserole. green bean casserole. Oh, <laughs> what a saw, classic. I tell you what, I saw it in the paper, the thing that she passed away, and I almost cried. I'm yeah. like, that's such an American classic dish. So here it is. Yeah. It, it's Dorcas Riley, and she invented, as Chris says, the classic green bean casserole. And in that casserole was a cream of mushroom soup, and it was topped with canned, crunchy green Mm -hmm. onions. When she invented this, she was the first full-time employee in the Campbell's Soup Home Economics Department, which is something that they started because the whole thing was about convenience. She eventually became a supervisor and then invented this green bean casserole, and it was in 1955. And the idea was, as culinary historian Laura Shapiro told the New York Times, the impression that they hoped that this would give, and I think it did, was convenience with a touch of glamour. Did any of you grow up with this? Chris, I know you still make it. I still make it and I love it. Yeah, absolutely. You make it, Robin? Yeah, sure. We've had it in the past. We haven't had it recently, so I think we're going to. We're going to have to bring it back one more time. Gosh, everyone has to this year, right? Yeah. 
Where do you all get the green onions? Do you buy those ones in the Durkies. cans? Oh, yeah, the yeah. turkey's yes. crunchy fried <laughs> and it onions. It has to be Campbell's, soon. has I to mean, be Campbell's. There's, there's some th- – you've got to follow that recipe. And you can't mess There was a time it. where it was just canned green beans, but now, yeah, now, you know, now we use fresh green beans. And I love nice. that they call it home economics back then. I do too. That was one of my favorite classes. Yeah, Yeah, I took it too. (laughs) Me too. I mean, I was really terrible at the sewing. Did did yours include sewing? Oh, yeah. I sewed a pillow, and the pillow that I picked to sew was a pizza. So I had to sew all these (laughs) toppings on it. It was terrible. You made a lot more work for yourself than you did. I know. That's the thing. I was like, well, maybe we don't need any more pepperoni on this pizza. (laughs) You were in the gifted glass. (laughs) Oh, sure. (laughs) I made Um, a dog bed. Poor dog. uh, You did not. Uh, did you? Did. No. Had oh. One side had Janet. fluff. The other side was on the ground. I so, feel like that's a waste of your talents, Alex. <laughs> so, I did okay on the food side, but on the other side of home economics in my high school, I made an apron, which is related, except that the fabric was green and the thread was black. <laughs> and they didn't like that. They just it's said, like a what green are you doing? <laughs> I thought it looked kind of great, but... You know, I mean, maybe I could get away with it now, but now for you know, sure. No. When I was in college, I made a dish for roommates and people who would come over, and it was sour cream, a can of cream of mushroom soup, chicken breasts. You just threw this all in together, and a half wow. cup of dry sherry. No. You stirred it up and you baked it in the oven at I'm sure 350 degrees. Yeah. And it was, honestly, at least in my memory, I really should do this again to see if it really was good. Oh, yeah. It was so, everyone would say, this is delicious. And they're like, let's go to Faith's room. <laughs> let's go to Faith's room. <laughs> She's baking tonight. Yeah. Oh. I actually had an with apartment a with a lot of people. <laughs> of course, I also bought a car and didn't have a license and told them to drive me around. But here's the thing. Would that also have been, because it was cream of mushroom, from Dorcas Riley's Very group possible. because she was with the Campbell Soup people. Yeah. I bet that was one of her recipes and it so was many really recipes, good. Right? There it was so delicious. Many re- I remember looking doing recipes with the tomato soup. I mean they had books, they had lists, they had little like things like on the soup you could peel yeah, the Yeah, there was back. always recipes on yeah. the cans, right? Yeah. There still are. Yeah, I think it yeah. was one of the first convenience items, right? You would use it in other dishes. Just yesterday we bought cream of mushroom and cream of celery because we're going to make a tuna casserole with the mm. That's the classic, sure. Oh, That's wow. probably classic, one of her recipes right? too. <laughs> hey, are you going to put uh, breadcrumbs on the top or just let that soupy mixture be the thing? I like it soupy, but I suspect Matt will put like panko on top because yeah. I think he likes the crispy top. Okay. Yeah, you got to have crunchy but top. I think, I so agree, I think we need to have a dinner party. Everyone comes to our house. We bring casserole and mm-hmm. you need a casserole carrier that Robin can sew in a keep them warm. <laughs> You have to wear my neon green apron. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Home economics weekend at Alex. Oh, yeah, bring your coupons. So oh, yeah, that's so cozy. <laughs> People at home are saying, I don't know what they're saying. What are <laughs> like, they talking okay. about? Hey, part of my job is to feed you New York City places to eat, drink, and see because it's so close. This one is a great restaurant. It's called Boulet, as in David Boulet, Boulet at Home. And it's featuring Chef David Boulet and his team in the restaurant, 
also a big culinary education space. And what they do is they bring in teachers and they teach, they have lectures on the intersection of health and food and just wonderful topics. But you can also just go into the restaurant and get it kind of to go for lunch. But at dinner, you really sit down and it was amazing. So that's at 31 West 21st Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. It's called Boulet at Home. Uh, fantastic meals and really interesting wine. So check it out. I'm already on the train. I don't know about you. But we should say, too, that he spends weekends in Connecticut, too. So there's a Connecticut connection with him, right? With Boulay. Mm, yeah. Do tell. Yeah. Litchfield County. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So there's been a sighting. There's been a sighting or two. He, yeah, he, is, <laughs> he is a super talented chef. Yes, agreed. You know, I spent a couple New Year's in his restaurant and it was so overwhelming because there were so many courses. It was just called Boulet. At 10 of midnight or 5 of midnight, Mm -hmm. we would get the later seating, a bunch of us, just to be present at the dawning of the new year. The doors would swing open from the kitchen and out would come the entire kitchen staff with, you know, the hats, toques, Sparklers. With, you know, out they would come. No, Alex, what they would do is have copper cookware and they would bang it. They would come in a line oh. and go bang, bang, bang oh, throughout man. the restaurant, wow. making a whole circle. My parents used to yell at me for doing that. <laughs> <in the kitchen>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like a, you know, a Groundhog Day kind of <laughs> in Essex, Connecticut anyway. They have a parade there where you come with pots and pans and you bang them. Oh, come on. No, that's the parade. All right. Okay. I'm in. It was just so glorious. So I love his food and stumbled upon this iteration of his restaurant. And it is really worth going to. Boulet at home. And the lectures sounded really interesting to me. And Alex and Mark in particular, because you're both wine guys, you would really appreciate the wine list. It's very unusual. And if you say to them, I'd like a glass of wine to match what I'm having, they're not picking by price. They're picking by what matches. Uh I noticed that. So, okay. Hey, want to do some kitchen tips? Here's what we do. We cruise blogs and vlogs and print magazines, radio, TV shows about food. And when we find something great, our philosophy is we like to salute our colleagues We wanted to salute Cook's Illustrated. We seem to do that many times because their tasting panel has recommended, we're going to get to this, the best butters. But they also have their tips. So we've got a break coming up, but let's do a few of them. Alex, you have one that's a favorite of mine because I have started having toast every morning, and this is something that drives me crazy. (laughs) Go ahead. So this is a great one. If you forgot to um, put your butter out the night before for your toast and you take out the refrigerator and it's rock hard, all you have to do is unwrap the top of the butter, use a vegetable peeler, and you can shave off this really thin little ribbon of butter that you can sort of cut and put right on your butter, right on your toast, and it's perfect. So you do a few of them to go across the length and of the, of the toast. Melts as much as you need. Melts very quickly. Yeah. No, no. Then I do another few <laughs> after that is melted. You cross hatch it. <laughs> That's it, right? <laughs> and, and do both sides. <laughs> and then you'd have a little and toast then throw with your the butter. wrapper away. <laughs> 
This is how the mind works. I say to myself, you know, you've really tried to ease up on these fats and you're not going to have butter for the rest of the day. So it's really okay to have extra butter on your toast. For today and tomorrow. That's my psychology. It's all good. (laughs) Okay. Robin, give us yours before we take the break. You know how boxed broth can sometimes um, splurt and splatter and glug out of the yeah. out of the container. Yeah. Oh Mark, yeah, mine does. Yeah, this tipster has found a way to make it go into the saucepan nice and smooth without making a big mess on the counter. And that is, instead of having the spout close to the saucepan where you're doing the pouring, mm. you actually rotate the container, that paper container, and you have the spout closer to where you're holding the container. On and top? Yes, on top. And you pour it that way. And it, it gives yeah. that broth a little arc right into the saucepan. No splurts and splatters all over the counter. Good I don't know. It's not fighting for the air. Yeah. Who came up with this? I don't know, I but it's just I fantastic. I spill it a lot. I, of, yeah. I use a lot of that stuff and I spill it. But all this time I've been blaming myself. Yes. Thank you. Robin, isn't there a way to cut the top that actually makes it pour better too? Oh, that's an excellent idea too. Like the way you would do with a milk mm-hmm. container. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know what you mean. That with a hacksaw. Yep. <laughs> Electric <laughs> saw. Your teeth. Pair, pair of scissors. <laughs> Turkey carver. Um, so listen. <laughs> we vegetable have, peeler. We have... We have more of these. What, what's that? Or a cleaver. You could use a cleaver. Okay. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to have more of these kitchen tips. I'm going to tell you the results of which butter is most delicious and all kinds of other things. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and of course, we'll be right back. But I'm thinking that we need less guns, more butter. Well, guns are butter, what are we going to do? Teach our kids to read. Oh, and they timber too. You might call me crazy, but thinking like I do, less guns, more butter. Hey, our president, he loves his little toy soldiers so much he sends them out to hell and back. And our government, it could take the whole world over. It don't that much to me if I'm living in a shack. Well, guns open. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show was originally recorded on November 29, 2018. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'll be ready. 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 I'
I'm Faith Middleton, and you can sign up for our free podcast, and it will arrive in your inbox on whatever device you want every single week. Just sign up once at foochmoose.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Faith Middleton, Foochmoose. Okay, I'm with my treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut, wine broker Alex Province, and Mark Raymond. As promised, we're going to go right back to the kitchen tips, but first... I want to tell you about a wine. Every year that this vintage comes out, I have it on the show because it is one of my favorite wines going. It is that museum reserve. It's a Spanish wine, and it has a kind of large metal-like label on it, and beneath it, a very modernist, beautiful, kind of MoMA-like bench in red underneath this metal label. It's a gorgeous-looking bottle. And this is the brand-new vintage, the 2014. And Mark is going to tell us about this as I have a sip. Go ahead, Mark. This has just got this beautiful black cherry fruit to it, Mm. a little bit of cocoa, a little vanilla. And it's just so elegant and delicious, lush. I love drinking this wine. Yeah, me too. It's one of those wines, you know, for $20 a bottle, I love taking this over to someone's house, turning them onto it because Mm -hmm. they maybe haven't had this Spanish wine before. Every single time, even though every vintage is a little bit different on Museum Reserve, because that's how wine is. It goes with the climate and the soil and how they made it that year. And this one is a little tiny less Bing cherry, but jacked up on the elegance. And so I would say to you, if you are bringing a wine to somebody's house, $20 is a perfect price point. And this is a wine to be proud of. And it goes with everything. If you go to our website, we tell you what to say. Call ahead to your wine store. They can't stock everything. They should have it to you right within 24 within hours. Within 24 or 48 hours at the most. Okay. When you have a wine – and we taste a lot of wines in the $20 price range. And sure. they taste like $20 wines. We know what $20 wines taste like. As soon as I take the first sip to the last sip, I think I'm drinking something that's more like a 40, 40. or $50 yeah. I know. bottle of wine. For sure. And that's yeah. why we keep bringing it up, I think, for me anyway. Spanish wines are underrated. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they really have a lot of value to them. I'm intrigued by your comment – that Spanish wines are underrated. And I think a lot of people kind of back away from them and wines from other regions. If it's a super bargain, of course, people will pay attention. But I kind of have this feeling that it's true. There are these gorgeous Spanish wines and, you know, the words make people scared and they don't understand what the grapes are. And They're real. They're authentic. They have history. Spain's been making wines for thousands of years, as long as the French are longer. And Spain competes against France and Italy and Italians are so good at marketing. But if you want authentic, real wine, Spain is one of the places to look. Whites, reds, cavas, they do it all. 
This museum, this is 100% Tempranillo. Tempranillo is a grape that we talk about a lot or that you see in your stores a lot nowadays in the Spanish section specifically. But this is old vine Tempranillo. The average age of the vine here is 100 years old. Wow. You know, there was a time where they, you know, not so long ago where they were ripping up all the vines and replanting wheat for food for the country. And so to find an area like this that still has old vine Tempranillo is so unique. The area Sigales, this was an area that is three meter deep in stone, so they couldn't grow anything else in here, so they really just left the vines alone. Yeah, but, Mark, and when you look at those vines, right, aren't they more like little bonsai trees? I mean, it's not oh, like a vine. It's mm. more like a gnarly pinion pine or something with... They're not irrigated, so roots go down like almost 100 feet looking for water. It's funny because you talk about, you know, typical vineyard sites that you would look at and you'd see, you know, rows and rows and rows for miles and miles and miles. And you get into this vineyard and you'd see there's one bush vine here and then, you know, nine meters away there's another one and then nine meters away there's another one. So you're looking over a vast area of a high plateau that has just like these little bushes growing. When you see Tempranillo, you think it's going to be kind of more on the simple side, but because these are so, these vines are so old, this is a complex wine. It really is. And that means when you have a wine with some complexity that's going to be beautiful with food and can handle anything that's on the plate. So with the holidays here in our midst, this is a beauty. Museum Reserve, that's what to ask for. And if you go to foodschmooze.org, you'll see that we have a picture of the label just to make it easy for you. Okay, let's come back to the kitchen tips. Chris, what do you have? This one really is a fun one. If you're having a big holiday dinner, you know if you're cooking everything yourself, the fridge is packed solid. To chill the soda and beer and any kind of wine that you want to get for cold. For a crowd? For a crowd, especially if you're having 10, 15, 20 people. Think about how much beverages that can be and you don't have the cooler space or refrigerator space. What this woman does is she has a uh, a top loader washing machine and she fills it with ice oh and then God. she just uses her <laughs> washing machine as an ice cooler. The next day, all you have to do – the next day, it's all melted. And you just have a washing machine filled with water. You just hit the spin cycle. It spins and drains and you're done. Uh-huh. It's oh genius. It's so clever. It's genius. It's genius. I feel like this is a tip where like at first all her friends made fun of her for this idea and now they're all doing it. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be Getting a little that. fabric soft. Well, it, it depends where you have that washing sealed. machine. If it's down in the basement, you've got to keep it going. I wash my towels after <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's a really cool idea. And you're right. When you show someone what you've done, they're going to copy this because this one's a good one. I guess my question would be, are you comfortable with people going into your laundry room for wine? (laughs) No, you would get it. What else do you have hanging in there that people are going to see? It's a place to store the wine. It's not the bar. I I might unplug the machine though just Just to prevent my friends from turning it on. Because you know there's going to be that one person that hits the button. Why is the the beer all fizzy? No spin it's cycle. Like a, new, a new kind of decanting. <laughs> okay. Well, Spinning so, and, martinis and here's, in there. Here's the final tip. I'm someone who burns toast 
because I, I want it to get dark enough and then I'm distracted because I've started reading the Times or something. <laughs> and of course, we all know about keeping our cookies in too long. I like my cookies quite dark. Oh, crispy. And then it can cross over into a little bit burned. Mm-hmm. This is something that I do, and I was excited to see this tip. So this was um, someone saying that she rescues her burned cookies that aren't too far gone. You know, sometimes it's like a piece of charcoal. But she takes one of those rasp-style graters, and I have them. Like you do for the lemon zest. And you just scrape... The most burned parts of the cookie. Uh, I totally love and it. And it comes off. And I do that with my toast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I with go too with far. I over the sink, a right? Knife, <laughs> yep. Either a knife or one of these raspers. I do the exact same thing. Yeah. And it saves the toast. Yeah. It saves the cookies. Right. And I think that's, that's pretty great. Mark, what do you have? Oh, I got this real cool one from um, one of our listeners, Ellen Cole from Old Lyme. We all have that problem with brown sugar, right? It always gets hard, Rock hard. when you put it oh, in gosh. into the cabinet. Then you well, what away. she does is she puts a tea bag into the canister, really? and, and her Ziploc bag or whatever yeah. whatever your holding mm-hmm. container is for your brown sugar, you put a tea bag into a that wet container. One? Like no, a, no, a dry one. Like a regular tea bag. Yeah. I've never and heard of this never, one. I've I never heard of it either. Never. I'm heard trying it, though. Oh, I've I'm heard, definitely trying it. I mean, peels. I've heard apple, banana. Yeah, no, banana I peels. mean, I've heard yeah. all kinds yeah. of fruit. Yeah. This yeah. sounds what like a clever magic. idea. A dry tea <laughs> bag. A dry tea bag. Thank you, Ellen. And that keeps it moist. Thank you so much, Ellen, because I struggle with this all the time. Yeah, then it's like a rock. I can't tell you how much brown sugar I have to like toss. Tea bag, a dry tea bag under my pillow. It would keep me from aging. A moist, Do you moisturizing. Think that I, maybe. I don't know. Faith wakes up and she's I'm got like try tea it. brewed. <laughs> Put them under my eyes. All right. Remember I said that we were going to feature from Cook's Illustrated their tasting panels test oh, yeah. of unsalted butter. I'm intrigued by this. Yeah. So this is really interesting to me because I do love butter. I mm-hmm. pay attention. I try different ones. Mm. The number one roll, is called Challenge Butter. Don't know I one. have never seen this. It's from California, okay. but now it is being distributed in 50 states. So I'm imagining in our region you can find this. Gotta look that up. Challenge yeah. Butter. They made a pound cake with and the chief taster said, I cannot imagine a better butter for a pound cake than this. Pricey? $4.49 a pound. Not horrible. Don't, That's not no. bad. Hmm? By the way, they say the best butters are wrapped in aluminum foil. Like the old school. As opposed to wax paper and whatnot. Uh-huh. Now, it may be really? a subtle difference, but yeah. they said aluminum Foil, no so much Maybe better. Maybe keeps the light out. That's interesting. Okay, what's number two? So challenge is number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, Kate's Creamery. Don't know that one either. Yep, five ninety nine. So and where's that from? A dollar plus more. Made in Maine. Close second to challenge. Very, really? very good. Made with sweet cream butter. Mm-hmm. Kate's look, Creamery. Look for that one too. So we've got one challenge, two Kate's, third, Land O'Lakes. Oh, yeah. Love it. Classic. And that's classic. That <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. Grew up on that. That's, yeah. Uh, I grew up and I still use it at Very home. Very straightforward, yeah. familiar. Yeah. Tastes now, like childhood. I, when I tried Kerrygold, which is number four, yeah, I, I loved it. That Irish I butter. Like it. Yeah. 
I like and, it a lot. Um, but different flavor profile than the other ones, right? Yeah. It's wrapped in parchment, even though the outside is yeah. in foil. They said it's like the cows ate a lot of fresh grass. Aww. Very flavorful. That's mm-hmm. what I found. Yep. Complex, grassy, yeah. tangy, cheesy, Kerrygold, yeah, pure uh, Irish butter. And how much? Seven dollars. Yeah, that one's expensive. That one is in my supermarket. I, I, I pass it goes on, on that sale, one. though. It's interesting, but depending on what they were doing with it to taste, like they were making a pound cake, I wouldn't use it the Kerrygold for the pound cake because it has that grassy, mm. stronger taste. You mm. right for a pound I like cake, the way you're, you're, thinking. you're looking for something else. Like if you're finishing a sauce, maybe mm. you want that, or if you're just spreading it on your toast, right? That cheesiness that you get out of the Kerrygold. <gasps> Yeah. Do you want that in your pound cake? More Have you guys made buttercream frosting recently? It's basically just half sugar and half butter. Well, that would be a good then, place to use yeah. a good butter. That's what I'm thinking. That's where using a butter that tastes good is really going to be worth it, I think. Do you yeah. know what butter I use? At the restaurant, not at home because I can't find it in President, I hope. No, no, it's not. It's uh, <laughs> I actually use Cabot. Yeah, oh, I from find and some of the milk comes from Connecticut, right? It's a conglomerate of farms that each yeah. put in, and some of them are in Connecticut. Why do you like it? Again, it has a really creamy texture. Mm-hmm. It has a subtle flavor, so it can be used in lots of different things. That's the thing you got to watch out when you're tasting the butters because if it has too strong of a cheesy kind of note to it, maybe that's not good in your buttercream, right? right. You gotta, Cabot, I just found to be the most neutral, but still have some mm. really great flavor and still really creamy. The the way I test too, and you can check this out is I melt them down, yeah. right? Because butter has water in it still a little bit. So when you see, you want a high fat content. Fat. Mm-hmm. So it's not just flavor. It's how much fat. And Cabot for me has a lot of fat. So you, yeah. when you melt it down, you don't get a lot of water away coming out of it. Do yep. you guys like um, a baguette with a slather of a lot of butter <sighs> and then ham? Who doesn't? Of course. Oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. it, is that not just like the best thing on the planet? Oh, Such yeah. a French thing. You know, you see when you go to Paris – Honestly, you'd think it's a cliche, but really, they are buying these paper-wrapped baguettes that are smeared with butter on both halves, and then this jambon, you know, a piece of ham, sometimes cheese, but you don't even need it. And they're walking around, going here and there, and chomping on this thing. It is, besides that, I don't know. It's butter butter. and ham, I guess. But that's it. it. But that butter melts in your mouth. And the quality of the baguette. It's unbelievable. High fat content butter. If you were making it for someone, you would think there's not enough ingredients to make it good. But just a baguette, a lot of butter, and a a thin piece of ham. Here I come back to my question. Why are we having dinner parties? Why don't we say... Here is a baguette wrapped in you know, brown paper. <laughs> Welcome to my party. Um, we've got some fabulous desserts and salad for you. Have a ball. A $15 here's some jugs of, of wine. Here's on a glass of wine. Have a ball. You need yeah, my washing machine. It, yeah. it is a great yeah. but with the less ingredients, you really have to work hard at finding like one of these butters here. Yeah, yeah. Finding a bakery but these are that makes store. Yeah, find a bakery that makes a really good bread. Good, good baguette. Yeah, and then yeah. ham. That's easy. It's a match. If you made had a nice piece of Iberico ham in there, you wouldn't yeah. even oh. need any oh. butter. No, because well, the fat from that. You can't put that on butter. Yeah. Yeah. Spanish <laughs> Keep ham. that away from the butter. <laughs> then you go special. to the hospital and lie down. <laughs> Coming up, we have the little book of Jewish feasts, the classics in Jewish cuisine. I don't care, Jewish, not Jewish. You're going to say to yourself, 
I have to make that. (laughs) We love the local. We ask you to support your local food growers and food makers. You can get the podcast and all of our curated recommendations at foodschmooze.org. And we'll be right back so quickly, so stay with us. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show was originally recorded on November 29, 2018. Oh, Middleton. This is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York. New York including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, that means the Hamptons too. The senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken. We love her. And to hear the show on Connecticut Public Radio, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9 podcasts, our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. I've been waiting for this because it's a wonderful little book. Leah Koenig knows how to cook Jewish food. And what I like about her new book called Little Book of Jewish Feasts is that it teaches me that to say she knows how to cook Jewish food is like saying someone knows how to cook American food. I'd say, what do you mean? What part of America, north, south, east, or west? So the question is, how do they celebrate certain holidays in the Midwest or the South in the United States? Food is so often regional. It can even be by neighborhood. And no matter where you live, There are some people who have recipes that are passed down, and that's what they serve. And I think those are the lucky people, if you ask me. Well, Leah Koenig joins us now, and after reading her little book of Jewish feasts, I learned that the Jewish people, depending on where they're from, often feast in the tradition of that region. So in this book, you'll find recipes as Persian Jews made them, what Ashkenazi Jews make, recipes as Greek and Syrian Jews celebrate. And of course, we have Leah's recipe for the iconic American Jewish celebratory dish, brisket. Leah Koenig, welcome to the Food Schmooze Party. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to start with what is one of my favorite recipes in your book, something often made by Persian Jews. When you hear these words, can you picture this Persian chicken, walnut, and pomegranate stew? Leah, would you please paint a picture of what this looks like as it comes to the table? Sure. Well, just a teeniest bit of background. So the dish is called Sesenjan, and it's popular throughout Iran. So it's not only eaten by Jews by any means, but 
it is such a central dish to Iranian cooking that Persian Jews adapted it for their own holidays and for their own tables. It's got sweet, tangy flavors. It has the richness mm-hmm. of the chicken. It has a bit of turmeric in there. And it has this wonderful thickened pomegranate molasses, which is essentially boiled down pomegranate juice. So mm-hmm. yeah. imagine the flavor of a pomegranate and then concentrate it. It's double the pomegranate through mm. the actual pomegranate seeds that have that little gelatinous thing around each seed and these pomegranate molasses it is a gem. I put a teaspoonful of this in so many things you can't believe it. Health food stores, for some reason, carry it. Yeah, and, of course, and it's widely available online also for folks who can't find it. I love Persian culture, and, you know, so I'm really, I'm really happy. It was just interesting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's really beautiful because it's such a saucy dish, literally saucy, not, you know, (laughs) saucy, saucy, but um, it has this sort of brightness from the pomegranate seeds and the bright green parsley on the top. It's really stunning as as sort of a centerpiece to the table. Chris, our chef on the show, uh, made for us, we like to test a recipe or two from each cookbook. And if it doesn't make the cut, we don't say anything. And if it does, we certainly do. And in your Mm -hmm. case, we're certainly talking about. Okay, so this recipe that I'm about to talk about, it's the Italian Jewish dish (laughs) for Hanukkah that is an amazing fried chicken. And what's unusual is that there is cinnamon in the spice mixture. Just a touch, but... Yeah, you can see it now at foodschmooze.org, including information about Leah and this book, Little Book of Jewish Feasts. Chris, tell me how hard it was or how easy it was. It is so simple. You take your uh, thighs and legs, you pat them dry, mix up a little lemon, lemon zest, garlic, salt, pepper, a teeny bit of cinnamon, and some dried thyme. In a bowl? In a bowl. You mix that in, and then you just marinate your chicken in that, and it goes in the refrigerator for an hour or two to let sit and marinate, and all those flavors. So those spices go in, in a bowl big enough to hold the chicken pieces, and then you toss them in the spice mixture. Let it sit for up to two hours, yeah, and then that cinnamon, really, when you bite into this, you're like, wait, what was that, right? Oh, yeah. It's not not strong, but it's just this little hint of cinnamon. When I took a bite of that cinnamon, I was like, whoa, yeah. I'm not used to getting that in my yeah. fried chicken. So you picked it, it up right so away. delicious yeah, and just, just adds a little bit of mm-hmm. just interesting yeah. difference to yeah. it. It's yeah. so good. Then after they marinate, you take them out, do your basic you know, fried chicken breading thing, which is you take uh, flour and you mix it with a little bit of onion powder and garlic powder and just stir that up. And then it goes from flour to egg mixture, just a cracked egg whipped, and then back and forward until it gets nice and coated. And then you drop it in a deep fry oil, you know, f- uh, 350 degrees, so 375. Can, can and, I just jump mm-hmm. in and say this back and forth business, coat it once mm-hmm. and then you go back again mm-hmm. and then you coat it a second time. Yeah. This is a classic way to make a very thick, crunchy yeah. outside to something. Yep. Uh-huh. It's what chefs uh-huh. do all the time and that we tend not to do at home. You can go back and do your coning a second time as Leah does. Alex, I want to thank you for going online because we didn't want to mispronounce this. Can you call it up, Alex? So, so we didn't know if it was polo or pollo. In Italy, it would be, because these are Italian Jews, it would be polo frito for Hanukkah. 
um, oh, or no. you could make this any <laughs> any time. Leah, we loved it. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm honored that you liked it. And um, one thing I just wanted to add is, in America, most people think about fried potato latkes as the kind of classic Hanukkah dish. But really, the the focus of Hanukkah is not potatoes or, you know, fried potatoes even. It's just the concept of frying because there's a sort of miracle of oil story in the Hanukkah story. So, you know, around the world, it's one of the ways that you see the diversity within Jewish cuisine because in Italy, you know, fried chicken is the way that they celebrate. They wouldn't want to eat a potato latke. So I just really like how you can take this kind of central concept and it kind of finds its own expression depending on where you're cooking. Yeah. See, there are regional differences, of course, like Red Sox and Yankees. I don't understand why someone wouldn't want to eat a giant potato latke. I really don't. <laughs> I, it's one of the greatest things I've ever had in my life. It's just well, you know, French fries and fried chicken go well together. So latkes. For sure. Fries. For sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Now you're talking. <laughs> okay. We couldn't resist when we were going through the book coming back to another of the Persian recipes. This is a take on a frittata. It turns out that this frittata is a favorite for Hanukkah, or if you ask me anytime, again, posted at our website, foodschmooze.org. Thank you for that, Leah. Can you tell us about this? Sure. Um, this is actually another Persian dish, and they call it a cuckoo. The one that's best known is called cuckoo sabzi, which is basically eggs that bind together a whole mess of bright green herbs and, mm-hmm. you know, popular throughout Iranian cuisine. In this book, I focused on an eggplant cuckoo. So you have sautéed eggplant and some fresh oregano and a bunch of parsley, a little bit of turmeric. And I like to put in fresh feta because I think it pairs really well. Mm. Oh, yeah. Brininess with the eggplant. With the eggplant. Um, oh, yeah. Get this gorgeous, golden, beautiful dish to put on your table, and it's quite lovely. And yeah. because it, it actually does have a decent amount of oil in it, not a super unhealthy amount, but a generous amount, that is why, again, it's, it's a Hanukkah dish because of the oil. I know. <laughs> this is a funny part. We always laugh on this show about what is the healthy amount? We just, we love olive oil. So The amount that makes it taste good, right? Yeah, That's exactly. right. Exactly. Perfect balance exactly. of taste. Yeah. So we have a trick on the show, Leah, where we tell people how to use butter or oil. It could be bacon fat. It could be duck fat, whatever you have, as a flavoring agent as opposed to a giant ingredient. So mm-hmm. we'll say, look, if you have trouble with this, make the recipe, substitute something, and then at the very end, take one small scoop of olive oil or butter and just drizzle it across the top or Mm. melt it across the top and it gives the impression of the actual flavor. Are you okay Mm. with that? In theory, that sounds great. I mean, I also really (laughs) like to pair heavier dishes with a bright green salad on the side. So you're kind of getting balance across the plate, if not in a specific dish. Ah, that's a good one too. And a long hike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a long hike, sure. (laughs) I am kind of famous for loving brisket. There's someone here in eastern Connecticut, Francine Sears, who makes a brisket that every year makes me fall to my knees because it is just so spectacular. Now, we didn't make this before the show, and I'm I'm very sorry, though I'm glad Chris made what he made. (laughs) It's a balsamic and brown sugar brisket, which is... Uh, brisket cut, 
pepper, vegetable oil, red onions, garlic cloves, bay leaves, beef or chicken stock, balsamic vinegar, and red wine vinegar. To what degree is this that kind of sweet-sour thing? This is a kind of updated take on what I think has sort of emerged as a classic brisket flavoring in America. A lot of people are familiar with brisket recipes that use chili sauce or barbecue sauce or even Coca-Cola in the salad. Dr. That's Pepper. A regional, <laughs> a regional, or Dr. Pepper, that's a regional ingredient that people have used. You know, I love the kind of sweet and tangy contrast that those ingredients had, but I wanted to find a way to do it in a way that felt a little bit more fresh and contemporary. Mm-hmm. So pairing balsamic vinegar and just a hint of red wine, because I feel like the two kind of balance each other out, with about a third cup of brown sugar really gives it that sweet and tangy flavor that pairs so beautifully with the savoriness of the meat. Also, I have a personal love of onion powder. Mm. I think it gets a bad rap in this country because people think of it as like, they think of onion soup mix, which is not what I'm telling you to use. I'm telling you to use real granulated, fresh, dehydrated onion powder. And it it just adds such a concentrated oniony flavor. Where do you get that? Oh, any store. McCormick's makes it. Look for onion powder in the spice aisle and you'll find it. Mm -hmm. Paired with fresh onions in the brisket, it's just so deeply savory. It hits that umami note on top of all of the sweet and tangy. Mm -hmm. I really want to have this right now. I know. I do, too. I know. I'm disappointed I didn't make it. it. (laughs) Alex, I don't know why I think I'm going to make it this weekend. Yeah. Can you make a brisket for two or does it have to be massive? No, it has to be massive. Oh. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> 13 pounds minimal. Yeah, it does freeze You can well, freeze it, you don't yeah. You can eat it all right away. Yeah. And it can, but you can't eat it all, though, right? But the flavors, <laughs> con- yeah, but you could if you wanted to. Yeah. The, the flavors do concentrate when you freeze it. It's kind of interesting. I had a friend who made a chipotle brisket. And so I wanted to add, if you're someone in your recipes who likes heat, You can take any recipe from Leah Koenig's book, Little Book of Jewish Feasts, and sprinkle in some hot peppers or cayenne or whatever, you know, jalapenos even. Would you say this brisket tends toward the slightly sweet or the slightly vinegary from the balsamic? I really work to make it pretty well balanced. It does have a sweetness to it, but it's not it's not overwhelmingly sweet by any means. And mm-hmm. especially because the brisket brings its own flavor, right? It has all the savory stuff going on just from that. And there's onions and garlic. So it's a really nice kind of sweet and sour mix. This recipe sounds absolutely amazing. I can't wait yeah. to make this. Later. We're all making brisket tonight, I have a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> if, happy not, Hanukkah. if not for the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> no, happy Hanukkah. Then too. <laughs> wow, happy Hanukkah. This is going to be on a million tables. I just mm-hmm. know it. So, Leah, as you celebrate Hanukkah, what's on your table? Well, I have a four-year-old, so I'm always thinking about things that he will actually eat. Um, Last year, we made sweet potato latkes that Mm -hmm. he really liked. We might do that again. I always like to serve brisket with latkes. It's actually a traditional pairing, and the... uh, the juice from the brisket soaks really nicely into the the latkes. (laughs) (laughs) And I also make my mom's applesauce. She has a very simple recipe, but she doesn't peel the apples. So Mm -hmm. the pectin or whatever that's in the the peel specifically gives it this really velvety texture. If you use red apples, it has a gorgeous sort of like rosy Mm. blush to it. Um, I always only make her her applesauce, which is the Mm. common 
most common topping for latkes. Do you have wine with dinner? Yeah, I like, if I'm doing fried food, I like to have something sort of effervescent. So we'll either do something sparkling, like Prosecco, and make it kind of festive, or more kind of hoppy uh, beer, even. Oh, wow. I've seen through the years, this past decade, that kosher wines have become so, remember back in the day, you know, they were kind of crazy. Yeah, Um, They have become, although that is part of the tradition, you know, I remember back a thousand years ago sitting, drinking the sweet Mogan David. Over the years, there have been so many vineyards, uh, basically in Israel, who have started doing kosher wines that are just exquisite. One Mm -hmm. or two I've had is among the best wine I've ever had. Yeah, there's actually also a great uh, kosher winemaker in California called Covenant. Mm. Um, Their wines are spectacular, and if you weren't a kosher consumer, you would still totally want to drink it. Yeah. But yeah, there's been some exciting developments over the last probably 10, even 20 years in kosher wine. So it's it's a much broader landscape. And it's it's Israel for sure, but it's also South Africa and um, Italy and Spain and other places that make yeah, great wine um, are getting into that. True, that world, so. true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just as you said about the wine, I would say this about this book. I'm just looking around the room. Well, none of us are Jewish, and we all just adore these recipes. So this is a book for everybody, mm-hmm. including our Jewish friends and neighbors who are great friends of our show. This is called The Little Book of Jewish Feasts by a woman who has done many cookbooks on Jewish food and is a writer you will see in many well-known publications. And it is an honor to have you on the show, Leah Koenig, Little Book of Jewish Feasts. Several of her recipes she's allowed us to put on the Food Schmooze site as an act of her generosity, and we thank you for that, Leah. It was my pleasure to be on talking with you all. Okay, take care and happy Hanukkah. Yeah, thank you. Hanukkah. Take care. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9 p.m. And never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, oh, it's the holiday season. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Come to my